If you want to make things that make things better, have fun doing it, and learn to help yourself and everyone around you flourish, well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Enliven. This is the show where we explore what's possible and the people, the principles, and the practices that are going to help you build enlivening products and enlivening organizations. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and my guest in this episode is Pam fox Rollin. Pam is an executive coach, facilitator, and strategist with extensive experience in senior team development, especially in the healthcare and tech sectors. She's worked with many clients in the Fortune 100, fast-growth startups, consulting firms, and NGOs. She was a guest fellow and master coach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and has lectured in business schools and boardrooms around the world. She's also the author of the book, 42 Rules for Your New Leadership Role, The Manual They Didn't Hand You. In this conversation, we explore a lot of different ideas that are going to help you show up more powerfully as a leader, create an environment where people can come fully alive, and how to be decisive in the chaotic, unknown spaces. We also discuss how to know when you need to change your approach as a leader, what is a different and better definition of leadership, and among other things, how we should each actually approach using personality assessments like the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram. This conversation was a lot of fun to have, and I hope it's equally fun and thought-provoking for you to listen to. So with all that, I give you Pam fox Rollin. Pam, welcome to the show. It's so good to be with you today. It's really great to be with you, Andrew. All right. Well, I am so excited. But, you know, I, was, uh, I always like to start these conversations on... Um, Something a little bit farther afield from our our main you know our main topic of of the thing, and something a little more close to the heart for you. And one of the things that uh, really stood out to me about you as I was getting ready for this conversation is how much you love design. And I was wondering if you could tell me how that started for you, and which designers in particular move you. Wow, um, you know it's not like there's particular designers. That moved me because I like design in all sorts of fields. I like design in education. I like design, obviously, OXO and kitchen tools, right? Who doesn't love that? I mean, those handles, right? Yeah. I like pens that flow easily. These are my very favorite. Kind. Which one's that? Which one's your favorite? Um, it's really simple. It's a Pilot G207. That is literally what I have right here as well. If you are that, you kidding? Boom! I got a blue no. one though. Here's is black. They glow, <laughs> right? They're so good. <laughs> They're like the best pen. <laughs> and it's so funny because I'm not in general a picky person about details, and yet when I facilitate, I want to make sure I have the super sticky stickies because if you're doing a multi day thing, you come in the next morning and all the stickies are on the floor. Right. That's not fun. Um, so yeah, that's so interesting. I do care a lot about design, Andrew. How do you think it influences you though? Right. Do you, I mean, do you, have you ever done any design work in terms of like a visual design? Obviously you do lots of systems thinking and, in, in sort of abstract design. It's more like experiential design. I think a lot about the experiences when I podcasted 10 years ago, <laughs> what are the okay. experiences like way in the early wild west days? Um, what are, what will be the experience of the guests? What'll be the experience of the listeners? I think about that as I facilitate strategy sessions. What are the experience of somebody who's coming in who maybe hates these sort of meetings? And how do we set them at ease so that, I mean, my favorite comments are, I just wanted to let you know that I hate these meetings and I didn't hate this one. 
or this was worth all the things I hate about it, <laughs> right? Um, so in leadership development, there's often that moment when you're doing something experiential where you can look at someone's face and you just know they're thinking, I don't know how to do this. I am scared that I'm going to be embarrassed. And if you have people standing in small circles rather than people flanking them to the side who they wonder might be snickering at them, eye rolling, that sort of thing. I think a lot about how I have people sitting and together and then often standing and moving around and that sort of experience. And also, how do we create opportunities in leadership development, but also in the days of actual leaders so that they can reflect so that they can kind of go to the balcony so that they're not just caught up in the drift of the day and they're running from the frustration of their nine o'clock meeting to the annoyance of their 10 o'clock meeting to the 11 o'clock meeting they were looking forward to, but they came in annoyed and pissed off already. And the people are like, why does he hate our team when that's not the case? (laughs) So how do we design moments in the day where you pause you breathe, you set yourself in like, well, what was I intending to accomplish with these people? Right. And to me, that's design too. Riffing on the design thing. There's a book you recommended to me the last time we talked that I I got, but I have not actually had a chance to read yet. I'm excited to, uh, and it's called the timeless way of building. And I was hoping you could, uh, you could tell me a little bit about that and, and what was so impactful about it for you. Absolutely. So One of the things you've probably noticed if you've picked it up is that it is not designed like many modern books are, because this was written some years ago by an architecture professor at Berkeley. And theoretically, it's about building. And if you substitute the word building for leadership Mm. or teams, Mm -hmm. the whole book still makes sense, Hmm. except for the bit about the design of windows. (laughs) we'll get rid of the windows but the rest that part it's a really it's a big book in that it makes really big claims and it is not possible to make great buildings or great towns beautiful places where you feel yourself places where you feel alive except by following this way it is the process through which the order of a building or town grows directly out of the inner nature of the people, animals, and plants in it. It's a process which allows the life inside a person to flourish openly in freedom. That's beautiful. Isn't that amazing? The whole book is like that. As you were saying that in my mind, I was swapping in the word team. And I was just like, whoa. (laughs) This might be my new handbook. (laughs) Yes. And he has a follow-up book, which has been, my husband tells me, because he's a software guy, he tells me has been very influential in object-oriented programming. And his second book, this architect's second book, is a pattern language. And it talks about what are the patterns that enable us to build great buildings and towns and all of that. And you can port that over easily to object-oriented programming because it's about patterns that you can combine in different ways that make sense, right? 
And we haven't been thinking that way in leadership. First of all, it requires thinking that it actually matters that people come alive in organizations. Hmm. And for some people, that's a fresh way of thinking about it. Like, why does it actually matter? Aren't they supposed to just do this stuff? Yeah. What, are they just supposed to do their jobs, Pam? Like, what, what, what yeah. do you mean? What is like, this a we have a business? list of things. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, if you ask people, even people who hold those views, are there some people on teams you've had who do the same jobs as other people, but they bring something to it that is more brilliant, more creative, more inspired, more dedicated? They do it within the same footprint. There's no extra resources. There's n- They don't work longer than anybody else. But because of what they bring to those tasks, you have a different result. And everybody can think of somebody. Oh, yeah. I was just thinking about one of the guys I work with really closely who always brings... like He's that person that I know when things are going terribly is going to make it... He's going to pull people together and... it you know. Get, get tell a funny joke or do that whatever to get somebody through a rough day, um, yeah. which I, I think is so invaluable. In fact, you know, if you and I write together the book, a pattern book of language of leadership, which you know, sort of just came to me. Um, it's a cool idea. We should yeah. check it out. <laughs> um, we could have you know humor as a way to just show up with humanity and inject some playfulness. Playfulness is one of the things he talks about here. If we're not He says a good environment brings us back to ourselves and it doesn't set us up for internal contradictions. And that part, let me see if I can find a quote about that because it was so, when you're in the space where there's nothing to keep, nothing to lose, you can do exactly what makes sense. There's no hidden fears, no undercurrent of constraint, no subtle fear of other people's ridicule. I mean, imagine what people at work could accomplish. Yeah. Wow. That that really takes the whole idea of like the circle of safety in a, in a work environment totally. to a whole like to a whole other level. Uh, the yeah. idea that it's funny you, you said the word playfulness. That's something I've been having a lot of conversations with people about lately about, you know, it's like this, this, I don't know if you're, if you're having, if you're seeing this in the conversations you have, but mm-hmm. I'm sensing this, this desire, this craving for a little bit of levity, a little bit of lightness, right? Because it's like everything we, I don't know, in the world of leadership, sometimes things can just get so damn serious all the time. And it's like, does it have to be? Like, I don't know. Play is how we learn to create. And somewhere along when we're four or five or six, we hear that actually doing things the way other people tell us to do things is how to create something that people will appreciate. One to tie it back to the book, one of the things he talks about is there didn't used to be building codes and building experts mm. and people who were trained in specialized builders, and yet amazing buildings got built. That's so cool. And we got the idea somewhere when we were kids that other people knew what was valuable about algebra and how to learn it from A to Z. And I guess that's okay in a world where there's defined problems and we match them with defined solutions. But if we want to go beyond that, I think play would be a useful thing to invite in the room. I love that. You know, it, it really reminds me as you were talking about the, uh, like there didn't used to be these, you know, architects and people with fancy, you know, fancy certifications and whatever. We just made stuff. And, um, I was thinking about like, man, how, 
how do we, it seems almost inevitable for most people that we lose that sense of play somewhere along the way for, for most people, it seems like it gets, maybe it's school and the way that's done, but it kind of gets drilled out of us at some point. Um, but I feel like it is possible to regain. And it, it reminded me of that Steve Jobs quote. I think the quote is something like, life is so much broader once you discover that everything around you is made by people no smarter than you. <laughs> I so love you it. can change it. Like you can, you can go do the same thing once you figure that out. And you're like, oh, wait, this is available to me as well. Totally. I love that. Do you see that in your in some of your work? Like, do you what do you see in terms of that that sense of playfulness? Like, do do you see that being actually something that um, helps leaders to really like elevate their game, so to speak? And and if so, like, how do, how do you get people through that process? Because it seems like it's such a personalized, nuanced thing. Like, if someone's lost that sense of play, how do they get it back? Especially at work. Yeah, some of the leaders I work with really have that, and I often find that they've kept it alive through some sort of interest of theirs. So maybe they make fancy skateboards just as a hobby, or maybe they're a musician. Um, maybe, you know, whatever it is, they do art, something. They're in touch with that. And often they know that they can bring a little bit of that, a little bit of that. And they can probably bring more of that and invite other people to bring more of that. And what we know from, I know you're an Amy Edmondson fan, you know, what we know from Amy's work sure. and the shoulders she stands on is that when people can bring themselves with their various interests and peculiarities and histories and all of that and be known in an organization, not have to hide pieces of themselves, then they're also available to create. I'm even more excited to read this book now okay. <laughs> because like I'm I'm even more excited than I was when you first told me about it which was pretty damn excited and because of that quote you said there's something I'm not going to get this exactly right but this idea that this these these environments can be places that bring us back to ourselves. Yes. And I think that is so core to everything we're talking about here and in, in this whole conversation we're going to have and I'm just so curious of like what you're seeing about how do we actually do this? Because I, I feel the need for this deeply from the people I talk to on the show, but also in my own like work life and then my friends, you know, this is something that I, I just see the world basically begging for is people are like, they, you know, we go spend so much of our lives in this place called work. And it's like, man, I feel like it's, I'm not me anymore when I'm there. Right. Right. And, the, you know, study after study, whether it's the Project Aristotle at Google or whether it's, you know, I've been tracking these things for a long time, helped rec refresh the class at Stanford Business School some years ago on leading diverse organizations and did another deep dive on the research. And it's all there that when people say, I can be myself, I can be known, other people see me as a human and not a widget, it's okay if... I'm gay or I'm black or I'm shorter or I'm tall or I went to an Ivy League or I didn't go to an Ivy League. All that diversity stuff that sounds relevant to some people and not others, it's relevant to all of us. Because diversity isn't a thing that some people have and some people don't. It's a relationship. It's right. <laughs> it's between you and me. We're diverse and we have diversity in some ways. And I know it can sound far afield to people. Wait, why are they suddenly talking about diversity? We were talking about creativity and leadership. <laughs> what? <laughs> How did we get there? What is this um, madness? <laughs> <laughs> and there's no question that when we have diversity and we're 
free to bring that. It's really the inclusion part (laughs) when we're free to bring that and the equity part that we all get to be heard and speak that we actually can create because we have different perspectives. We have different histories. We have different cultures we grew up in. We have different degrees. We have different ways of seeing the world. And if there's two of us exactly alike in that, we don't need both of us to create something. I think the reason, I, actually, I don't know this, but I'm speculating, I'm wildly speculating in what I'm about to say, just to be clear about that for everybody. So I, I speculate that a lot of the reason that things are the way they are in sort of mainstream leadership, so to speak, right? The ideas that most people think are what good leadership is and looks like and, and how you show up and do it and all of that. I think it might come down to one main thing, which is a, a bad definition of what leadership is. Totally. And I really like yours and I was hoping we, you, we could explore that a little bit. Could you share that with us and let's just see where that takes us. Awesome. I used to have sort of a Rolodex of definitions that I like. The one that I have come to that I most like is from Bob Dunham at the Institute for Generative Leadership in Colorado. And he's been a great mentor of mine. And he says leadership is building a shared future that takes care of what people care about. Hmm. I love that. Yeah. What when you stand there or when you get leaders to shift and start to look from there, what shifts? What changes for people? Mm. One is they have to pay attention to what they and other people care about. That no longer becomes irrelevant. That no longer becomes <laughs> like <laughs> Wait, I have to I don't care? care? What about is this? <laughs> All we're doing is producing this widget to go out the door, or this next rev of the software. Why do we have to care about anything? Yeah. yeah. So that can be an act of something. It's an act of producing something, but it's not an act of leadership. Mm. It's also, it's about the future. If you want everything to stay the same, I was interviewed maybe about seven years ago to be on a nonprofit board. And I said, what? changes do you foresee in the organization? What do you want to accomplish in the future that you're not accomplishing now that you would want me to be a part of as a new board member? And this executive director and board chair looked in horror and they said, we don't want anything to change. We're really good the way that we are now. And this was a youth science organization. Meanwhile, you know, everything is going crazy in online education, in understanding of how to engage youth, in science methodologies and citizen science and distributed science, and they don't want anything to change. <laughs> Something about this picture is broken. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, great. Well, thank you for the lunch. I don't think, I'm <laughs> I don't think we're a fit. <laughs> yeah. So no future, no leadership, no care, no leadership, no building something. So you got to figure out how do you coordinate a group of people to build something. You know, if you go to the idea of building something, one of the scariest things is declaring a future, right? It's sort of using the power of language to put something out there in the future and say, I'm standing for this. And I was going to ask you a minute ago, like what, and maybe this is a great place to expand on it, but you know, I know Bob Dunham is a huge influence on you and and the Institute for Generative Leadership. And I was hoping you could explain a little bit about uh, the impact they've had on you, what generative leadership even is. Uh, sure. I think most people are not going to be familiar with that term. And how, do that, how does that play into the declaring and creating futures? Sure. So if you take generate as just a phrase, as a word, um, one of the things that I love as a saying in this tradition is that 
dictionaries have words, but in language, when we have a word, we create a world. And so one mm-hmm. way to experiment with that is to say, like, Taylor Swift, what comes up for you when somebody says Taylor Swift versus what comes up for your roommate when somebody says Taylor Swift, right? And <laughs> it's something different. Or somebody says agile methodology and one person lights up and the other person groans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So we can never assume that what's important is the words. What's important is the whole images, the whole network of, you know, the world that shows up in somebody's head. Mm -hmm. And so we lead in language. We notice that what matters is the language that it brings up for that person, the world, the context, the reality it brings up for that person, not what we said. Mm -hmm. And the generate part for me, is reminding us that at any moment, there's choice. And why do we lead? Why do we bother doing this stuff in teams instead of just making our own pilot pens? Because we love them so much, right? (laughs) And I'm sure you face this as a product designer. Like, if one person could do it, that would be, in a way, easier. But I don't know anybody who is patent lawyer and a material science engineer and a marketer and knows distribution channels, right? There was that, somebody wrote a whole book about making a toaster. Yes. I don't know if you've heard of it. I was going to ask you about the toaster. Oh my God, that's such a good (laughs) example. For anyone who's not familiar, what's the toaster story? Oh, it's just that it takes so much work to make a toaster from scratch. It, I mean, it's incredible. You would need to be a to mine or <laughs> things, all sorts of things together. And the person got it working for like three seconds and then the thing sizzled out after a year of making a toaster. I may have the details wrong, but um, yeah, you can you read the book. Like a year and like $12,000 on making this toaster and it lasted for six seconds and blew up in his garage or something. <laughs> something absurd like that. So for most futures, we have to have teams. So when we talk about generative leadership, it's not about a solo act of damn it, I want a pen. It's about finding a group of other people who want to be on this journey with you to create the pen. Because either they want the pen, or they want the experience of working with you, or they want the money that you're going to pay, whatever it is that they care about, you're going to need to have a team with you. And Generative leadership came out of a well-known, well-respected coaching school called New Field, which itself came out of a lot of different streams of work on ontology, Fernando Flores, Searle, a whole whole bunches of thinkers, you know, people stand yeah. on shoulders of. Um, but where Bob Dunham has taken it is to be thinking very, very deeply for 20 years after he was a VP at Motorola to think about what does it actually take to create with other people? Mm. And what do we need to know to do that? But much more importantly, who do we become to make that more likely? And so I'll give you a little very practical example. Do we become need to become somebody who actually is capable of listening to other people? Now, okay, so my mind keeps going to meat packing plants. I don't know why, but they're in the news right now. Right? They're all COVID problems with the meat packing plants. <sighs> to add another framework, are you familiar with David Snowden's complexity framework? Nope. Never heard of it. Okay. I'm going to really quickly share it with you. So what it basically says is 
you can sort kind of the environments in which you're making decisions into four different environments. The first one is what's called simple or known. And that's when we know exactly what to do for this sort of a problem. You want a pen that goes like this. We know what spring you put in it. That is very well understood. It'll probably be taken over by robots. It's so well understood. Even if it can't be taken over by robots for some reason, you just train somebody to do it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so I'm thinking of the people shoulder to shoulder getting COVID in the meat packing plants. I'll get there. Believe me, I will take this home. But this is where I'm, I believe you. Okay. My mind is going. You got this. So the second type of environment is what's called a complicated or knowable environment. So I don't know how to answer this right now, but I know the tools that will help me answer it. So let's say in the meatpacking plant, parts of the conveyor belt line are sticking and you're a frontline supervisor at the meatpacking plant. You don't know how to fix that, but you actually know how to talk to the mechanical engineer to say there is a problem at this thing. And the mechanical engineer says, oh, that's a problem that I know how to solve. And they fix it. Many of us learned in the known and simple environment. Our grandmas knew how to make spice cake and they taught us. Our teachers knew how to teach algebra and they taught us. We worked at the ice cream store in college and they showed us how to use the cash register. Yeah. Right. Simple note. And we thought that that kind of was leadership. Like the boss was 23. I'm 20. So obviously that's like, that's leadership. That's one context. Then the next context of the complicated or knowable, that's what we went to school for. We went to school to get the degree to say, if this thing happens, here's what you do. And so supervisor at meatpacking plant may not have gone to college, did, I don't know. But they know, oh, this is beyond what I know how to do. But there's a mechanical engineer who can try a number of different things that this person was trained how to do and figure it out. Great. A lot of us are used to leading in that kind of complicated or knowable world where once we get a handle on the problem, we know what tool to grab and solution to apply. However, anytime we find ourselves in that VUCA environment, right? Volatile and certain. And let's just say we're all in this. I don't know when this is going to air, but I'm pretty sure the world is not going to be out of the COVID crisis by the time this airs. Probably not. So supply chains are broken. Distribution chains are broken. Some of the people are broken and out Um, the way we did things before. So if the meatpacking plants need to reset to provide safety, six feet of distance, they're going to need to do more than solve a known problem. They're going to need to deal with what in this model is called a complex issue, which means we don't know which tool we apply to solve it. Mm -hmm. And we're not actually sure that it's a problem to be solved. It's more something that we create, we sense, we monitor, we adjust. And the leadership skills you need in that environment are very different than, let's go call a mechanical engineer. 
and you go back to your shift. We need people who can say, who do we get in the room and what's the right conversation that we want to have? So it really is a design conversation to go back to where we were a bit ago. It's a design conversation. And for those, what does it mean to be prepared to lead a design conversation? It means you know what's important, right? You know where the future is. You know what people care about. And you're totally open (laughs) to what a solution might look like, right? Yeah. And that you can facilitate a conversation of people to figure out which responses, they may not even be solutions, but which responses to try out would be most likely when you're in this space of complex, you're dealing with probabilities, you're not dealing with certainties. Many leaders are not prepared at all for this. And that's what I see a lot of right now, not from You know, I'm fortunate to work with some really, really, really fabulous leaders, but that skill or that perspective isn't evenly distributed in their organizations. So sometimes I have to say to them, you get this, you get that it's about pulling people in the room and having the conversation, but other people are still thinking it's about go find the person who can fix the conveyor belt, Hmm. right? Totally different sort of environment to lead. And then the fourth part of the model is chaotic. It is when we don't even know which direction is forward, when we don't. And to some extent, we've seen some of that show up in this, in this crisis. But I think most are probably in that complicated sphere. And that's enough of a step for a leader. And coming back to your question about generative leadership, to me, that body of work, and it's an evolving body, there's so many people contributing to it. That body of work speaks to everything you need to do in that third space of complex problems that we're not, we don't pop out of grad school trained to know how to do. So many amazing things inside that that I want to unpack for a little bit. Like, first of all, let me make sure I'm tracking with you on the model. So yeah. it's it's sort of in the beginning, we have the known knowns, right? It's, it's deeply understood. Then we move from the known knowns to sort of the known unknowns in the complicated, the world of the complicated. And then we make a jump out of things. No. Okay. So yes. Correct me I'm getting yes. There is that model of the known knowns and the unknown knowns and the, sure. yeah, that thing. Yeah, yeah. But we're not doing and, the Rumsfeld model. Yeah. It's. <laughs> It's close. Um, you might want to stick with this part of the, the, the known, the knowable. Okay. The complex. Because if you start with the other model, it doesn't always get you to the same place. Okay. Got it. So we go from the, the, the known, the deeply known to the knowable yeah. to right. the complex to the chaotic. Yes. Okay, got it. That's interesting. And it seems like the real pivot point there, the real or leap that we've got to make is from sort of that second to third bucket uh, from the complicated, the complicated to the complex. Yes. And, and so I'm just curious to make sure I'm understanding, understanding you You're right. You're totally tracking. Yeah. The way I have understood the difference between complicated and complex is that it boils down ultimately to predictability. As in something, you can have something that's insanely complicated, like, um, the engine in my car, which right. is right. That is a super complicated thing with like 15,000 parts, but it's super predictable. We know, we know what happens. It's, you know, we understand exactly how that works. It's knowable. Uh, but in a complex environment, 
suddenly we don't we no longer understand the cause and effect relationships and we can't predict what's going to happen is that fair or is that where where does that not where does that go sideways i would add something on the on the knowable or complicated part that kind of second one that we may not know like pieces of things in the engine we know mhm However, if you want to design a hybrid to run on a different sort of fuel than things have run before, or a battery that requires different sorts of things, it is not that anybody knows it. However, for most of those things, we have the existing tools to be able to know it. And one thing to Mm. notice is that as the tools become better, AI and R, all sorts of tools that people have at their disposal. More and more people are capable of handling complicated problems that used to only be able to solve simple problems. Mm-hmm. Yep. In a way, the downside of that is many people in leadership roles think that they can handle complexity when really what they can handle is matching people who know how to use tools to solve defined problems. Mm-hmm. And there's a big difference between the leadership skills to do that and the leadership skills to say, we have to reinvent our supply chain. What are we going to do? So I think there's two things I want because I want to bring this bring this down and kind of ground this and make this very actionable or as actionable as we can for people because I imagine some people listening to this are probably in this transition point where where and so the first question is how does a leader know they're at this breaking point where their model is breaking and they're ma- they're actually at the leap from complicated to complex so that's question one and then the second is what do they do about it yeah so I think a handy test is. If I were to pull together, and I'm making this up on the spot, I'm just thinking it through together with you and come back with, if you see it in a different way, Andrew. For sure. This is the fun part, right? It's, uh, it's We're exploring this together. Yeah. If you could pull your five, you know, your quote, five best people cross-functionally across the organization and and send them emails or give them instructions and say, go use your tools and solve this part of the problem. It's probably in the knowable space. But if they would come back and say, God, I don't know how to do that. Could we talk some more? Could we get together in a room that has a whiteboard? Or could we use whatever Miro or whatever people are using now as their (laughs) Zoom whiteboard? You know, we're going to really need to think this through. And I can't think of actually anybody who I can call who could put together an answer on this. In fact, I'm not even exactly sure what you would mean by a good answer on this. That's the space when somebody is leading in that complex space. And the the approaches from generative leadership include how do you pull people together? How do you invite people to come together? How do you put them in touch with what they care about? So they're those alive people instead of the dead people we were talking about earlier. <laughs> yeah, I, think we, I think we need all cylinders for this, for this yes, kind of work. We, we need do. everyone fully showing up. <laughs> totally. So that you're speaking to and truthfully to what they care about. How do you show up? And this is where the people go, oh, wait, I have to change. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is the tricky bit. <laughs> 
And it's not that you have to change. You have to find in yourself the part that has clarity. And they're like, if I had clarity, I wouldn't have to pull all these people in the room. What do you have clarity on? (laughs) You have clarity that the world needs your ventilator. Or if you're in the meatpacking world, I guess the world needs a way to to deal with these hogs that if they do not get are going to get slaughtered anyway, because there's no place to put them. So you have to come up with some way of doing this and protecting worker health. So how do you show up? What do you bring out in yourself? Do you show up with curiosity? Do you show up with commitment? Do you show up with an ability to listen to this person, listen to that person and integrate what they're saying or highlight the differences? I'm guessing you've had some of these meetings, Andrew, where these are the things you have to show up with. This is, this is the, in my experience, maybe the hardest part of doing this thing because it's it's not the calling people into the room it's not the inviting i mean well it depends who you are but in my experience (laughs) has been i haven't had any issue personally inviting and asking for help like i i know when i'm outgunned and i want help (laughs) and i'm like cool let's get everybody in here let's do this thing somehow um the the hard part i think is is uh to use the fancy word here the ontological bit Right. It's, it, and it's, you know, that for, for anyone who's not familiar with that term, that's kind of a fancy way of saying, who are you being? Or more simply, how are you showing up? Um, how are you kind of constituting yourself in an environment? And that's what I find to be the hard part, both managing my own way of showing up, but also cultivating a, a conversation for others to consider that question. That I think to be the, the challenge. Yes. And I think that is the challenge of the complex quadrant. And yet here's a bunch of people in leadership roles who haven't been exposed to some of the beautiful stuff that we've experienced and had the chance to play with and work with and are still students of. I don't know. That's true for me. And I, I hear in you this curiosity as a lifelong student. So having the courage to say, I want to make something happen here. And I don't know how to do it. And I am willing to show up with energy, with full presence, with commitment, with listening, with curiosity, with an open mind. That is what we're helping people get in the experience of. And before this crisis, I think some of them weren't exactly sure that they had to do it because they've been so successful up to this point. Hmm farming out the work and telling this person to do that thing and this person to do that thing and then making a decision based on what the spreadsheet says. And this is a whole new level of complexity. And that invites us to be, to show up in a really different way. So Rita McGrath has been writing for about 20 years on discovery-driven planning. And It's this idea that we don't actually know when we get together for whether it's a quarterly strategy offsite or to do a five-year strategic whatever, which now seems like a very, very long time period. Um, We don't actually know. And we come out with a decision based on what we thought the world was going to look like. And then we ask people to pretend that the world is going to look like that and do the things in the report. And wouldn't it be a 
better way to document the assumptions we're making mm. and check with the real world and see if those are playing out. <laughs> Wait, that sounds really logical. What are you <laughs> talking about? <laughs> and that would mean having a discipline of a rhythm of communications where every three months or six months, maybe less so now, maybe it's every week or two, you say these assumptions that we had, is the world playing out that way? Hmm. And if the world is playing out differently, does that tick us over to a different strategy? So when you're playing in this discovery-driven planning world, you have to have a humility that you you're not leading from an authority of, I told you to do this because it's the smartest thing. Mm. You're saying when we got together and sensed and poked the world and figured out some probabilities and figured out what we thought would be the best way to go and decided that we're going to implement in this way, we know that actually the world might go a different way or the world might respond differently than we expect to our products or what we do. So we're going to come back together on a cadence and do it, which requires, again, a set of leadership competencies that not everybody builds on their way through. I was working with a um, startup founder who has built a very successful startup. It was 26 years old at the time. Okay. And he was um, working with me on implementing OKRs, their first kind of set of objectives and key results to keep the company aligned. And there's a lot of fabulous things about OKRs, but to me, they're excuses for really good conversations that your organization should be having about what are we going to do? What are we not going to do? How are we going to align? What do I need from you? You're nodding. So I'm guessing you have some familiarity. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I'm very, very familiar with, with OKRs. Um, one of the early guests on the show was Christina Woodkey, uh, who also yes. teaches at Stanford. And she's really I got, great I, yeah, Radical Focus is her, is her book on OKRs, yeah. which I still think is the best one out there on OKRs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I love what you, the point you're making because it's like the, I think probably you're right. The best thing about OKRs is the conversations that it forces and the ways of thinking that that, that those conversations engender. Yeah. So if we all do, if you do this and you across function do this and you across function, does that actually add up to the big thing that we said we were doing? <laughs> yeah. Or if we promised everyone everything and we're not actually going to accomplish anything. So, you know, this fellow in his lovely 26 year old wisdom, I'm very, very bright. But he said, why do we have to get together and talk about this at all? People can just put this in the spreadsheet. They can put their stuff in the spreadsheet. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Don't spew. <laughs> Just for the listener, as she said that, I was having a sip of wine. I almost sprayed it all over the computer screen. I was laughing so hard when she said that. All right. Anyways, back to you, Pam. <laughs> he really needed some selling on the value of getting the team together and having it as conversations rather than comments in a spreadsheet, which gets to part of the point about leadership and that funny word ontology and really being like, how do you show up as a leader? Do you show up as somebody who stands for your commitments? Like, do people believe it? I was on the phone earlier with a client and a company and she says, yeah, when that VP talks, I believe it's 70%. Okay. So 
What would he need to do to think, to be, to show up, to bring in his body? Leadership is a performance art, whether you're on the phone or an email or standing there. And we've all had leaders who things come out of their mouth and we just put a discount factor as soon as it comes out. We're like, okay, <laughs> that's 25% likely to happen. That's 80% unlikely. Like, you can just, um, and so how do you be somebody that when somebody says something, they go, ah, I'm seeing commitment. I'm seeing mm-hmm. this person is determined. I'm seeing that they're inviting me to something important that they're committed to seeing through. Mm-hmm. So in this discovery-driven planning world or OKR world where you're having a cadence of conversations that say, what is the future we are going to create? And I think OKRs are a wonderful vehicle for generative leadership. They don't always go together well, but to me, a generative leadership perspective addresses the part that OKRs can kind of miss, which is it's not about the spreadsheet. It's about what are we committed to and are we aligned in that? And what are we going to go make happen? Mm-hmm. And making the hard choices about what we're not going to do. 100%. And then how do we have the conversations of we had a breakdown? The world did not happen as we thought it would. The world did not like our stuff the way we were sure that they would. <laughs> <laughs> we built the wrong thing. <laughs> we built the wrong thing. Um, happens all I the time. built my thing fine, but you didn't build your part of it fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> So then how does somebody show up in the room that makes those conversations useful instead of shaming and blaming? Mm. What does that person need to believe about themselves and the world and how things work to be able to say, wow, shit happened here. We need to talk about it and doing it in a way that leaves people energized instead of drained and afraid. And that goes along with this stream of work with Snowden, who came up with that framework, and Bob Dunham, and many others that seems poorly understood in in kind of the practitioners of leadership, which is sometimes you don't wait to know to act, but you act to know. So say more about that. When you're on the complex and the chaotic side of things, if you wait to act until you know, it's going to run you over. And we see this with COVID, right? I'm really glad I'm in the Bay Area. Our health people, they didn't know. Yeah, they jumped early though. They're like, we're going to do this thing. It seems reasonable, but there's five other reasonable things we could do. And so we're going to shut things down. We're going to put in these restrictions. We're going to do all this stuff. And we're going to learn as fast as we can from this. And we're going to learn from people who didn't do it. We're going to run experiments. We're going to run pilots. We're going to see what's working and what's not working. And in a world that is changing very fast, whether you're in a startup in normal times or you're anybody in these times, having act to know as part of what you're comfortable doing as a leader is just essential. 100%. So I want to actually get a little bit more concrete with something you said there. So you talked about there. there's sort of you asked the question of what is that person, that leader who's going to bring these people together for this conversation and facilitate this conversation? What do they need to believe? What, what skills do they need to have? So you're one of the people who's out there helping leaders grow in these ways and make these transitions, you know, 
in reality in their actual jobs and such. What, how would you answer those questions? What do they need to believe? What do they, what skills do they need? So I'll give you a few sort of, um, greatest hits rather than an overarching framework, but a few of the things we wind up talking about a lot. One is to believe that there's a whole world out there and they see only a little bit of it. And so to bring curiosity, to bring humility, to bring the capability to ask people, you said, oh, I'll go ask people. Not everybody is comfortable with that. Hmm. And especially I see it in medical and other areas where many people came up through the PhD track. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Once worked with a team. God, I love them. They're such, they're total sweethearts, but I call them the seven grumpy PhDs. <laughs> <laughs> they're the brain trust of a fintech company. And as one guy said, who had been a professor of physics, he said, nothing in my background has ever prepared me to talk to people. It's all about me being right and me knowing more than anybody else and being able to prove it. And yet we're in these problems that are so complex that he can't know everything. And they were so stressed about it and had to learn to talk to each other to make it through. So one is just bringing that willingness to not know. Another is to bring a certain sort of spaciousness about breakdowns. Hmm. Breakdowns will happen all the time. And when you're making bigger promises, you're going to have bigger breakdowns. Yep. You can easily not have breakdowns if you're not doing anything interesting. The worst <laughs> thing that would happen is, I don't know, Netflix goes out as you're sitting on your hey, couch. That's a, that's a big deal right now, Pam. Oh, okay, I'm in quarantine. I'm Netflix going out is a big deal for me. <laughs> <laughs> it could get even harder, Andrew. Oh, <laughs> like, damn it. Damn it. <laughs> It's possible that the biggest You're telling me Amazon Prime video is going down too. Oh my god! Oh <laughs> no, my god! I'm really screwed. Yeah, totally. I don't know something like. I'm sorry, I took you off. Go ahead. That's okay. The healthcare <laughs> system, or how do we do public transport safely so these amazing frontline workers across fields don't get sick or bring it home to their families as they're trying to get to and from working at the fire station. Like, how do we take care of those problems? And if you're going to put your hat in the ring to take care of those problems, you're going to have really big breakdowns. And so learning how to go, ah, the world worked out differently than we thought, didn't it? Okay, let's update our assumptions. Let's figure out together what might be a new experiment to run. What's a new path forward? Instead of you screwed up, you're gone. You screwed up. <laughs> you know, I'm not listening to you. <laughs> let's imagine someone listening to this is going, okay, Pam, you sold me. I'm in. What's their next step? You know, let's say maybe maybe they don't have access to working with somebody like you, but what, what can someone do uh, to go develop themselves this way, to start to learn, you know, to, ch- to make these changes in themselves to show up as the kind of leader you're describing here if maybe they don't have access uh, to somebody like yourself? The f- First thing, and I, I know this is where you come from too, awareness creates choice. Mm, yep. So even to have some very simple models like this, you know, simple, complicated, complex, chaotic, what room am I, or Zoom room am I walking into today? Like, what's the situation here? Am I using the right tools for that situation? To be aware of their impact on the room. So like if they imagine the room without them, and then they walk in, what did they add to that? Or they click on, what did they add to that? Did they add fear? Did they add curiosity? 
did they add a love of good data? Did they add compassion? What did they add? Right. And you don't need to have an executive coach to ask other people. Find a few allies. This is how I developed when I was at Accenture is a couple of us grabbed each other and said, we're going to be our feedback partners. Because at one point there was like a 360 thing and it stopped at the partners. And we're like, wait a second, we need it too, right? So several of us decided to give, we would be each other's allies in our growth. And we would give each other feedback. And I know you're working on this and here's what I saw. So there's a lot you can do with awareness. When it comes to learning other ways, there are some books. There's some things that you can do there. Sadly, a lot of the learning isn't, it's not the the difference between knowing something and knowing how to do something. (laughs) (laughs) Those are miles apart. (laughs) Miles apart. Like, have you ever tried a recipe? I don't know. A lot of people in quarantine, I think, are trying a bunch of different recipes and discover that. I followed the recipe and it did not (laughs) seem to produce. (laughs) The result did not follow. No. In YouTube, it looked a lot better (laughs) than the mess that I got. Right. And it's because that chef has in their body years of good methods. They know how to chop stuff. They know how to smell across the kitchen and say, Ooh, it's just at the right amount of doneness. That's stuff that you can't get from a book. And so if you can work with a coach or you can go to something like Foundations Program for Institute for Generative Leadership and put a few days into it, or if you can work for somebody who is awesome and amazing and say, I I see in you somebody who's capable of doing X, Y, and Z. You know how to produce it. I'm here to do the work, but... I, is it okay if I'm also here to study you and see how you do that? Because I want to learn how to do that. I, I'm remembering some of my own. I'm having flashbacks to some of my own early moments of, of you know, I, I think as if anyone who's interested in the journey of leadership, as anyone who's still listening to this conversation undoubtedly is, um, is that, uh, you know, it, it's a lifelong apprenticeship, right? It, it's never done. We're always going to be learning this. We're always going to be apprenticing to somebody else. Uh, and if I can, the one phrase that came immediately to mind as I was thinking about this, um, I don't know who said it first, but I've heard it a few different times, which is never mistake a clear view for a short distance. Ooh. And I think it's like a really old <laughs> proverb from the, you know, from the never Midwest or something. Awesome. Yeah. But the punchline is like, yeah, you can, you can see the picture clearly. <laughs> you can read a book, you can, you know, go to a talk or a weekend, whatever. And that's great. Honestly, it is. Listen to a podcast. Start- yeah. yeah, listen to a podcast, whatever. It's great, right? Because you got to start with like, it's like building a puzzle, right? You got to start with the picture on the box. But don't confuse that with a short distance. It's a, it's a long road. And learning how to get it in your body, just pausing to think that you're already doing everything you need to do to get the results you're getting. Like you have perfectly toned that system. You are so practiced. And for some people, they're really practiced at subtly shaming people who bring problems to their attention. They are so good at that. They know exactly how to produce that impact, even if they're unaware of it. So it's not only that you have to know what you want to do, but you have to give your voice and body and all of that the chance to do it multiple, multiple times to get good at it. 
Mm, yeah, well, none of us are good at stuff the first time, and it, it's all it's all a process. I want to start to close out here with a couple of rapid fire questions. That they're they're fairly short questions. Your answers don't have to be. Um, but one thing that really just strikes me as I as I've been listening to you is um, you know you've talked uh, you've mentioned several times uh, this idea that what leaders do is that leaders articulate a shared future and then engage others in creating that right like they're they're someone who's declaring a future that others can step into and commit to, to helping create and yes. anybody can do that and you know that's such a big step of that is owning that that vision that they're putting out there right owning that future they're declaring and and it really occurs to me that one of the things you love about what you do is helping other people <laughs> to see new possibilities how did you tap into that for yourself? How did you find that that was your, your, your genius, your purpose, your, your whatever you want to call that? That's really beautiful of you to notice. Um, yes, that's super important to me. It is one of those things that's been true of me for a long time since I was a little kid. And we'd say, wait a minute, this could be so much better. And I'd have all sorts of ideas for my teachers and, community theater organization. We could do this and you could do more than you imagine you could do and all of that. So for me, it's been accessible. One of the joys in my work has been helping other people access that for themselves. And yeah, that's something I absolutely love to do. Could I could I add something to to the thing about leaders building a future? Because yeah. I love that you added anyone can do that. And I absolutely believe it. And my only worry about that statement is it sounds really grand. Like I'm gonna build a shared future we all care about. <laughs> um, a frontline customer service employee can say, I, you know, I really would like us to build a future where people are not confused by the structure of our videos or self-help videos on YouTube. I would like to create a future where our customers can go to YouTube and immediately find the video that they need. And so they can mm -hmm. ask the other people around them and they can ask their supervisor and they can ask other people in the company, what do you guys think of this? Would that be a valuable future? Would people care about that? Would it matter? And then say, I'm going to make an offer. I, I will organize a small team of people to go make this happen. How does that sound? Right? It is not mm. about having leader or manager or VP, God help us, in, the, in your title. It's about seeing a future and getting other people engaged. 100%. What is a small change that you've made in recent memory? And that could be you know, a week, that could be three years, whatever. But what is a small change you've made in recent memory that's had an outsized impact on you or the way you show up? Or just your life, you know, something small that's that really improved things. There's a meditation, a little med I've done meditations at various points and meditation retreats and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But there's a very small one that's really beautiful that a friend taught actually a team of us. And we now use it as our little team meditation. So we, sometimes like at a retreat, not at every meeting, but if things are really hard, like early in this COVID thing, and we were all just sheltering in place, we were like, what if we do a little meditation together? And it's just four <laughs> lines and we've all gotten just, it brings up feelings of the team. It brings um, it's so peaceful. So just devoting a little bit of time when that would be useful. I did it earlier today 
and just sat with that, that has made a difference to my life. Think about this as assigning homework, right? If you could, what, what homework would you give a leader listening to this to take action on the, these ideas? Like, what's the starting point? If you could just say, you know, do this one thing, this is your assignment, what would you, what would you tell them? Can I say field work instead of homework? When we talk about words bringing up worlds, usually the world that the word homework brings up for people is contraction, meaninglessness, Mm. and I'm going to be graded and I could do it wrong. And if I use the word field work, they're putting on their investigator coat and they're going to go try things Mm. out in the world. I would assign them to do a really quick check-in with themselves. Like, how does it feel to be you on the inside? Where are your feet? Where's your back? If you're in a chair, feel your butt in the chair. How are your shoulders? I find shoulders tell a lot about how somebody's doing. Your jaw, is it all tight from the last stressful meeting? And take a moment to invite that to relax. A good way to do it is to take a few deep breaths. Usually I find that by five deep breaths, people are different, (laughs) really different. And on the out breath, just invite those tightened up parts of you to let go and just say hello to yourself on the inside. Show up to your next meeting and see what's different. So um, my last sort of rapid fire question here, and this one is specific to you. Most of them are general ones, but this one's specific for you. So I know you've done a lot of work with the Myers-Briggs as well as yep. the, uh, the Enneagram, which are things that um, I think many people are at least yeah. loosely familiar with. But what I'm especially curious about is, you know, if someone, and we'll link to all this in the show notes, if someone's engaged with that material, most people I think have engaged with that on a yeah. more of a shallow level, yeah. right? They're like, oh, yeah. I'm this yeah. type, this such and such. But how how should they actually look at using that as a real vehicle and a tool uh, for for their own development and and for showing up the way in all the ways that we're talking about in this conversation? Oh, my gosh. Thank you for that question, Andrew, because I think most people use it backwards. So people say, oh, come tell me what my type is or come tell my team what my type is so we can treat each other like the label on the box. And, Mm. oh, if I know that person really like, then I'll do this. Or if I know that person so backwards or in the business context, people, (laughs) I've had so many companies over the years say, I hear you do Myers-Briggs. Would you please do Myers-Briggs with our sales force? And then we'll correlate those results with the salespeople that are successful. And then we'll only hire the people that have that Myers-Briggs type. They said, so one, all Mm. you will have proven is that you only know how to value and make the most of the people of that type. And five years from now, mm-hmm. all your sales managers will be a common type. And I can show you the reams of research on why you want a diverse team instead of a common type team. So how about instead, I work with your salespeople so that they understand themselves and that they can distinguish between their shtick and stuff that is kind of right and appropriate to do. Because once I know that for me, I prefer to do what in Myers-Briggs is called intuition, which is really like broad frameworks, general. And 75% of the world has the other preference. 
they want the specifics and the pattern and the detail and the budgets and the step-by-step in order, then I can modify, not very successfully in this podcast, (laughs) but then I can modify how I communicate so that I can be successful in having a conversation with more people. Hmm. I'm not going to ask them to treat me in a certain way or whatever. I'm going to know when is my comfort zone useful and lovely and when is it getting in my way? That's super powerful. That it goes going all the way back to awareness creates choice, which I think is like the, the perfect place to leave off. So Pam, um, first of all, thank you so much for, for being here and for sharing, sharing everything of your experience and your wisdom. Is there anything you'd like to leave the listener with and any requests you have of the listener? Engage with your life and work. Uh, <laughs> go make the world a great place to be. See if you can be one of the many who are creating a world where everyone thrives. I mean, really, there's that. If you want to connect with me, connect with me. There'll be some stuff in the show notes. My website is ideashape.com. And then as a collaborative, Altus Growth, A-L-T-U-S, growth.com. Um, but I'd be glad to connect with you if you care about this stuff. Um, and mostly I want you to be well and go help others be well. Perfect. Well, Pam, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us reach way more people and build this community up. For show notes, links to the resources and everything else we discussed, please go to enliven.fm. Feel free to reach out with questions, feedback, or just to say hello by emailing connect at enliven.fm. Be sure to subscribe and until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. We'll see you soon.